This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today we're going to talk about whether Jesus is a liar, lunatic, lord, or legend. He gets accused of two of these things in the gospel we'll read today and claims another in Mark chapter 3. But there's a lot more in this brief gospel. We see opposition rising against Jesus, even among his own family, and wise words from Jesus covering some important concepts, including where his power comes from, the sin against the Holy Spirit, and who his true family is. So let's start. This is actually the parallels in Matthew and Luke, but I'm going to read directly from Mark chapter 3. Uh, a decent chunk of Mark chapter 3, but it's actually a short gospel compared to the, some of the ones we've had recently. It starts with Jesus and Beelzebul. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting about him, and they looked to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around on those who sat about him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. So first, Jesus is accused of being crazy by his family. Second, Jesus is accused of working in league with Beelzebul, with the devil, by the scribes. Third, he tells his disciples that they must follow his will primarily in their lives. In other words, one group thinks he's a lunatic, another thinks he's in league with the father of lies, and Jesus himself says he is Lord. This calls to mind the famous trilemma, they call it the trilemma of C.S. Lewis, who said that there is one really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, quote, That is one thing we must not say. 
a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he has a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and call him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. So his family says that he is a lunatic, and the Pharisees say that he's a demon. By the way, this issue is addressed in a book by Brant Petrie that I think every single Catholic should read. It's called The Case for Jesus. It is awesome. Click over to your favorite bookseller right now and order one. Petrie quotes the Bible scholar Bart Ehrman, who says, He doesn't have to be either liar, lunatic, or lord. He could be a first-century Palestinian Jew who had a message to proclaim other than his own divinity. End quote. So Petrie calls this option liar, lunatic, lord, or legend. And Petrie does a remarkable job of picking apart all the arguments that have bothered many of us for a long time about who Jesus is. I know I heard the old arguments that the Gospels are all anonymous stories, that they're essentially a game of telephone where all kinds of silly beliefs about Jesus kind of built up and got collected. It is really remarkable what Petrie finds out when studying theology at a secular university and then in his doctoral studies at Notre Dame. He goes looking for all these anonymous gospels that supposedly exist, and he can't find any. He quotes other scholars who talk about how this strange, untrue belief in anonymous gospels grew up in the first place. And I personally find it hilarious that it's not religious people who made up stories about the gospels. It turns out it's religion's debunkers who have made up these stories. They claim to be hard-headed guys interested in just the facts instead of religious fakery, but they are the ones touting fakery while the just the facts guys are like Brant Petrie. Let me explain. Bart Ehrman says that the titles of the four Gospels are a, quotes, not at all innocent, in quotes, form of false attribution and forgery. He says the Gospels had a wide variety of titles until the final forms were made. And he says they are folklore, which in their current form have built up over people telling and retelling stories, a kind of game of telephone where oral traditions are passed on and tall tales grow taller. But no anonymous copies of these Gospels exist, and we have manuscripts going back to the second century, so the 100s, right? Every last one of them attributes the Gospels to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Ehrman is wrong. He's either making it up, or I don't know how he, why he thinks there's a wide variety in the titles. There just aren't. They all say according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Uh, in fact, Petrie shows that it would be impossible to do what Ehrman suggests and have Gospels crop up around the same time all over the world with almost identical content and almost identical titles, each attributing the same content to the same four Gospel writers. It's bizarre. Nothing about the legend makes any sense. Neither Luke nor Mark is one of the people who traveled with Jesus. If you are going to make up 
a bunch of gospels about this man, Jesus Christ, who you wanted to make into a bigger deal than he was. Why would you attribute your gospels to people who hadn't even traveled with them? They're the most unlikely people to have a gospels attributed to them. Anyway, get the book. Brant Petrie drives nail after nail into the coffin of this silly claim. And it makes me kind of mad, actually, to think that there's such a widespread belief that even I kind of believed and kind of until I read this book, I, to some degree or another, that the Gospels are these suspect texts that when there's actually some of the best attested archival work done on the Gospels showing their reality more than any other ancient text. Anyway, that leaves C.S. Lewis's trilemma standing. And Jesus has the argument here against the liar part, the satanic part of this claim. He points out that if he is an agent of Satan, then Satan's kingdom is headed for ruin because it's divided against himself. It's a house divided in Lincoln's famous words. But if he's not an agent of Satan and yet is capable of casting out demons, then Jesus must be something very special indeed, someone with power over the devil. In other words, if he's not in league with Satan, he's Lord? Jesus goes on to mention that all may have their sins forgiven except one sin, the sin against the Holy Spirit. And that's always been kind of a um, dark and scary passage in the Gospels. I remember when I was a kid reading that there is this unforgivable sin, and I immediately became afraid that I might commit it and, and be unable to be forgiven. But the Catechism describes the sin against the Holy Spirit this way. There are no limits to the mercy of God, but anyone who deliberately refuses to accept his mercy by repenting rejects the forgiveness of his sins and the salvation offered by the Holy Spirit. Such hardness of heart can lead to final impenitence and eternal loss. End quote. So in other words, the unforgivable sin is the refusal to believe that sin exists. The proliferation of that sin, the loss of the sense of sin and denial of the need to repent is by far the deadliest pandemic of the 21st century. And I think I have pointed that out before. So we should pay close attention to this. The church, the hierarchy, the consecrated people, the laity, you and me, all of us, have failed for decades now to pass on the faith such that less than a third of Catholics in the United States believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, which is one of the central tenets of the faith. And the sacrament of confession has been in a decades-long crisis. So people have lost the sense of sin such that the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit is now literally at pandemic levels. On the one hand, you have some of us who think that sin is no big deal because God doesn't care if we do something wrong. He shrugs his shoulders and shrugs off what we did automatically. But that's not true. He only forgives those who repent, and refusal to repent is by its very nature unforgivable. On the other hand, you have people who feel that what they have done is so terrible that they can't receive forgiveness. That is also a sin against the Holy Spirit. When I interviewed women who have had abortions, they told me that they had all felt that way at one point or another. So if you think you don't have to repent, that's the sin of presumption. If you think you're so wicked you can't be forgiven, that's the sin of despair. In either case, Pope Pius XII, Pope Paul VI, Pope John Paul II, 
Pope Benedict XVI and Pope Francis have all said that the loss of the sense of sin is the problem of our day. And yet the church in the West has done very little to spread the news that there is such a thing as mortal sin, which is the kind of sin which can lead to hell if it's unrepented and not brought to confession. So I try to bring this up whenever I can, so you'll indulge me for a minute. In his final encyclical in 2003, St. John Paul II, the encyclical was called Ecclesia de Eucharistia, uh, the church from the Eucharist. St. John Paul II declared in kind of papal formal language, the kind of language a pope uses when he wants to be super serious and define a doctrine. He said, quote, I desire to reaffirm that in the church there remains in force now and in the future the rule by which the Council of Trent gave concrete expression to the Apostle Paul's stern warning when it affirmed that in order to receive the Eucharist in a worthy manner, one must confess one's sins when one is aware of mortal sin, end quote. The U.S. bishops picked up on that and got very serious about this in their 2006 document, Happy Are Those Who Are Called to His Supper, on preparing to receive Christ worthily in the Eucharist. The bishops pointed out that communion is not just for Catholics only, but also only for those Catholics who have gone to confession in the past year, at least, or after committing any serious sin. The statement even spelled out common serious sins that put us in a state of mortal sin, that when we do them deliberately, knowing they are wrong, place us in a state of sin. One was committing murder, including abortion and euthanasia, harboring deliberate hatred of others. Another one was engaging in sexual activity outside of the bonds of a valid marriage. Another one was producing, marketing, or indulging in pornography. Another one was missing mass on Sundays and holy days of obligations without a serious reason, such as sickness or the absence of a priest. So this rule was a huge deal. It is a huge deal. This is 21st century popes all kind of rallying around this idea. Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict XVI, even wrote to the U.S. Bishop's Conference president in 2004 that pro-abortion politicians should be denied communion. And Cardinal Jorge Borgoglia, who is now Pope Francis, agreed in his 2007 Aparecida document, which says, quotes, we should commit ourselves to Eucharistic coherence. That is, we should be conscious that people cannot receive Holy Communion and at the same time act or speak against the commandments, in particular when abortion, euthanasia, and other serious crimes against life and family are facilitated. This responsibility applies particularly to legislators, governors, and health professionals. End quote. So the good news is all of these sins can be forgiven. All that needs to be done is for people to be told that they're sins and be told about confession, reminded about confession. Because Jesus can tie up the strong man Satan and set anyone free. The only sin that he can't forgive is the refusal to believe that sin is actually a problem. Anyone who believes that binds the Holy Spirit instead of Satan and refuses to allow him to work in your life. So that's the liar part of the trilemma in today's gospel. But that brings us to the lunatic accusation in the gospel story we read. That's actually the very beginning of the story 
but then I think it's resolved at the end. I remember when a friend told me, wow, Catholics think Mary was this great figure and a perpetual virgin, but Jesus didn't see her that way at all. He said any one of us can be his mother, and he had brothers too. Anyway, he told me he had heard all of this from a priest's homily that really shook him up. When I heard more about the homily, I guess the priest was technically okay, but his emphasis didn't help my friend at all. But the gospel was actually the Matthew version of the gospel that we read today. In it, Jesus is told, your mother and your brother and your sisters are outside asking for you, but Jesus doesn't jump up and welcome them in. Instead, he says in the Matthew version, quote, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those seated in a circle, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my mother and brother and sister, end quote. Once you know the facts, this is actually a great story about Marian piety. At least I think so. Let me explain. The fact is nobody in the early church would have been bothered by this passage at all because they knew a few key things about it. They knew that the word for brothers was sometimes used for cousins, as can be seen in several Old Testament passages. But they knew exactly who the brothers of Jesus mentioned in Mark were. In the Gospel of Mark, he mentions two figures as the brothers of Jesus, James and Joseph, who's also in some translations called Joseph. They're also known as leaders in the early church. And in several places, Mark identifies them as the children of another woman named Mary, who Matthew calls the other Mary. Very likely, the woman John identifies as Mary, the wife of Clopas. And speaking of Brant Petrie, whose book, The Case for Jesus, I was just promoting, actually, he covers this issue in his book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary. He shares information from the church history that Eusebius published in the year 313. Eusebius reports that James became known as James the Just and mentions that since Clopas was the brother of St. Joseph, James is the cousin of Jesus. Therefore, he's called part of Jesus's family. Once you know that, you just need to put this story in the right context. As we know, Mary is highly regarded in the New Testament. The angel Gabriel calls her full of grace. Elizabeth calls her blessed among women and the mother of my Lord. When Jesus is presented in the temple, Simeon gives her a personal prophecy, and Jesus performs his first public miracle in Cana at his mother's prompting. So Mary is at the very center of Jesus' story in the Gospels. And in the third chapter of Mark, we see Mary right there as Jesus begins throwing himself fully into his mission. He gets mobbed by people wanting cures for exorcisms, and he gathers 12 apostles, that must have seemed like a strange motley group to his family. Then he returns home and he's mobbed again. That's when the trouble with his family starts. Mark explains, when his relatives heard of this, they set out to seize him for they said he is out of his mind. So you can imagine what happened. His relatives, which surely included his brothers, are spooked by what they're seeing, and Mary takes the situation in hand. One thing you know about Mary is that she's very direct with God and very direct about how we should deal with her son. When the angel tells her she is going to bear a son, she asks him point blank, how can this be since I have no relations with a man? When she finds him in the temple after losing him for days, she says, son, why have you done this to us? Then she tells her cousin Elizabeth, 
all of the mighty power of her son. And she tells the servants at Cana, do whatever he tells you. This is a very direct woman. So when his relatives have doubts about Mary, Mary takes them directly to Jesus. In this case, Jesus' advice is very much like Mary's favorite advice, do God's will. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother, says Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus' family seems to have done after this point. Mary is there at the Passion and again at the Resurrection. Next, when they're waiting with the Holy Spirit, Mary is right there in the middle. The book of Acts says, Those who with one accord devoted themselves to prayer, together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. End quote. So Mary takes them to Jesus when they think he's crazy, and we find them there waiting for the Holy Spirit after Jesus has risen from the dead. They went from doubting family members to part of Jesus's inner circle, and they eventually, many of them, became martyrs for Jesus. And so, yes, Jesus thought his mother was pretty special, I told my friend. And although he was an only child, he doesn't want to be one anymore. He wants you and me as his brothers and sisters. He wants you as his brother or sister because Jesus is Lord. And that's what this gospel is all about. In fact, that's what Mary's life is all about. She's the kind of mother who recognizes that Jesus is the Lord. And I've said this before. Sometimes we think of Mary as this demure figure lowering her eyes. That's not quite right. It doesn't sum her up the way she is. I think I said this in one of the early episodes uh, that we think of Francis of Assisi as being the most the saint who is most like Jesus in his personality. And often it's said that Mother Teresa is the saint who's most like Mary. Uh, Mother Teresa was very direct and very loving, and that's exactly how Mary seems to be. Now, at the Carmelite Chapel to Mary at the Basilica of the National Conception in Washington, D.C., it says there in a phrase that's often noticed by visitors, Mary is more mother than queen. So I think it's important to see her as a mother of Jesus, but also as our mother. And I kind of like to think of her in opposition to several dysfunctional kinds of mothers that there are. Like she's not a helicopter mom. She's not one of these aloof moms who's uninvolved in her kids' lives. She's not a pageant mom who's all proud of her kid. She's not a pushover or a party mom uh, like some moms are. She's a kind of mother who's encouraging and direct. And if it's true that we're all Jesus's mother and brothers and sisters, as he says in the gospel that we read, then Mother Church is a lot like Mary as well, or should be. Should be that kind of mom. Too often the church is a house divided against itself, which, as Jesus predicted, will not last. After the Synod on the Family, Pope Francis gave this talk about five factional temptations in the church. And I like to think of them in terms of what kind of mother the church would be like in each case, if one of the five factions was right. Let me explain what I mean. One faction, Pope Francis said, suffers from a temptation to hostile inflexibility, wanting to close oneself within the letter of the law. So this faction is people who reject the spirit of the law and cling to the letter of the law. Catholics tempted this way see the church as controlling, micromanaging, 
a mom who tells us what path we should take and then makes sure we stay on it. This, this is seeing the church as kind of a helicopter mom. This mother replaces my freedom with her direction and my conscience with her rules. But we were not made to be robots programmed by God or by the church, or our, by our parents for that matter, but free people seeking God's will. Francis identified a second faction as progressives and liberals. He said their temptation is to a destructive tendency to false goodness. This group binds the wounds without first curing them and treating them, and treats the symptoms, not the causes and the roots." End quote. So for these Catholics, the church is kind of the best friend mom, the party mom, if you will, who above all else wants you to like her. For this mom, the sinner must not be challenged or questioned or bothered in any way, but allowed to do as he pleases. This mom dares not threaten the emotional attachment she wants with the child and so refuses to acknowledge sins or discipline the child. If we fall into this faction, we always want the church to be more welcoming, but we never get around to telling the people we're welcoming what Jesus actually expects of them. A third faction Pope Francis identified makes most sense to me as a kind of a pageant mom. Francis said that for this group, quote, the temptation to transform stones into bread, to break the long, heavy, and painful fast, and also the temptation to transform bread into stone and cast it against the sinners, end quote. He seems to see these two tendencies as opposite sides of the same coin, the tendency to be hypercritical on the one hand and the tendency to refuse to engage on the other. The church for these believers is a pageant mom with unrealistic expectations of her children. Pageant moms come in two different kinds. On the one hand, there are the perfectionists who are constantly saying that's not good enough. On the other hand, there are those who hang kind of a rosy halo over their children and adore their every move. You hear one type forever saying you're not good enough and the other type forever saying you're so special. So Pope Francis seems to see this faction as falling into that kind of misunderstanding of their mother. The fourth faction, he says, is tempted to, quotes, come down off the cross to please the people and not stay there in order to fulfill the will of the Father, to bow down to a worldly spirit instead of purifying it and blending it with the spirit of God, in quotes. So these are what? Pushover moms, maybe? If you think of the church this way, you see the church as kind of a pushover mom whose spirit is willing, but whose flesh is weak. She knows what her children need to do, but she does not have the heart to confront their weakness in order to make sure they do it. This is the mom who's forever making excuses for herself and her children. Francis's fifth and final temptation is to neglect the positive of the faith, to neglect reality, making use of meticulous language and smooth talk to say so many things to say nothing, end quote. If the previous mom knows the truth but won't suffer for it, this one refuses the truth itself. She's the cool mom. She will tell you that her children need to make their own decisions. They should wear what they want, go out when they want, and come home when they want. And, but this is the mom you see in the news when they get busted for having a keg party at their house. The problem for Catholics who fall prey to these temptations is that the church has presented herself as one of these moms at some point in our lives. Maybe a moralist convinced us that God 
has an exacting discipline and wants us uh, wants to catch us messing up more than he wants to see us happy. Or maybe a permissive parish convinced us that God is kind of an apathetic, kindly aunt who smiles benignly no matter what we do. We may have had a grumpy pastor who performed his services perfunctorily because he had given up on trying to change his people, or we had a peppy pastor too wrapped up in his own vision of the church to stop and notice what we were really like. But the answer is to discover a true mother. In the same speech, Pope Francis describes the church as the fertile mother and the caring teacher. The true church doesn't judge or categorize people, but instead seeks to be faithful to her spouse and to her doctrine. She is not afraid to roll up her sleeves to pour oil and wine on people's wounds. Her doors are wide open to the needy and not just those who believe and are perfect. It sounds like he's describing Mother Teresa, someone who doesn't judge people on the, in the outset, but moves them closer to Jesus Christ instead. The church welcomes us in baptism, heals us in confession, encourages us with the rich traditions of her liturgy and culture, the problem for Catholics who fall prey to these temptations is that we may have seen the church present herself this way at some point in our lives. We've seen the church look like a moralist. We've seen the church look permissive. We've seen the church overly eager to please. We've seen the church in all of these guises. What we need to do is recognize the one true Catholic church who is a mother like Mary, who is always close to Jesus Christ, always insists on the truth, but always wants to bring us one step closer to him, not push us away. I see this gospel ultimately as an answer to doubts that we have. Jesus himself shows us that he's not a liar, not in league with Satan. Jesus himself shows us that he's not a lunatic. Uh, Jesus himself tells us that he is the Lord. Now we know exactly what to do when we doubt those things, when he somehow he or his church seems to us to be a liar, or he and his church seems to us to be kind of crazy. Now we know what to do. Do what Mary had his brothers do. Go directly to him. She takes his relatives directly to Jesus. There they learn that Jesus is bigger than they thought. He wants to create a family bond with every believer, including them. The same thing happens to us when we bring our doubts directly to Jesus in the tabernacle or through confession or by discussing it with one of his ministers, a trusted priest or religious. The more we learn, the better we know him. The better we know him, the more we see that our doubts come from misunderstandings and that God has an even bigger plan for us than we know, a plan to make our stories part of his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story. Visit us at excorde.org.